Greetings and salutations. You are listening to the Into the North podcast, where we take a look at the competitive side of the Commander format, also known as CDH. I'm one of your hosts, Lyndon, aka Noobzors, and today I am joined by my co-host, Reed, aka Sick Robot. How are you doing, guys? Morgan, aka Spleenface. What's up? And unfortunately, there will be no Matt aka null this week uh he is feeling a little under the weather so uh we're gonna be moving on ahead without him and uh we're wishing him the best uh yeah so in this episode we're gonna be covering how to brew in cedh and how to feel good about it (laughs) and uh yeah so without further ado let's let's jump into housekeeping so morgan do you want to yeah, sure. Cover this uh, this this, this episode's probably coming uh, a little soon after the one before, but uh, if you remember, we sort of slipped a little bit in October, and we're still catching up. So this is part of that, and we're going to get back on track and get back on our two a month schedule. Yeah, yeah. So uh, there's a bit of we a just not do an episode. Yeah, Come there's on. a bit of a scheduling yeah. scheduling issues with. Uh, special episodes we kind of initially planned to do those um almost once a month but or like every other month at yeah, least but sort of got turns out trying to on. get those things scheduled is harder and then we've had some technical technical difficulties difficulties sorry technical difficulties with uh one of them so we got it recorded but one person lost their audio track or just you know got corrupted with just something we've we've experienced before but yeah, so we we're gonna have to like re-record that episode eventually. Yeah, so we're we're gonna we're gonna try to figure out the special episodes. Uh, just might not be as frequently as we had hoped for. But yeah, we'll we'll make sure we're keeping to the two episodes per month, even if they're regular episodes. So yeah, sorry about that little uh, that little mishap in October. Anyways, uh, new developments. We've got. A nice post on Reddit from Redshift, uh, and since it has the H word in it, Hulk Reed, I'm you're gonna cover yeah. this one. <laughs> oh yeah, sure. Um, yeah, uh, Redshift on uh, like every Discord ever. I don't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, made a pretty great Reddit post the other day about dealing with Hulk. Um, tips about handling it, um, mostly from the point of view of a cast player, but it also has just like you know a bunch of great stuff in there in general if you play against hulk and you don't want to have to spend so much effort trying to think about how to play against hulk um great guide bunch of good info in there i would check it out um it's also coming from red who is a very prolific shuffle and breakfast pilot shuffle and breakfast pilot sorry um plays the decks a lot and also happens to maintain the cast consult uh staples slash base list um so a lot of perspective coming from both sides of the table in this one so what's just checking out we'll link it yeah very very valuable information here uh and i guess this is uh we've got this listed under new developments but not super relevant to cedh but uh well (laughs) sure yeah it's it's kind of relevant to cedh because i've seen a lot of people discussing this card because yes i mean Okay, if Oko is the best card in every other format, shouldn't he be the best card in CEDH? 
You just gotta so, try harder. I mean, <laughs> we have to make him the best card. Oko is dominating standard. It's well represented in Pioneer and Modern. Sees play in Legacy, and apparently, in a vintage tournament, we got to see a Black Lotus attack for and, lethal. Sorry, excuse you, an Alpha Black Lotus attack for <laughs> attack lethal. Attack for lethal. <laughs> That's an expensive elk. <laughs> but in CDH, uh Despite people really seeming to want to put him in decks, I don't think he goes in most decks. I think the closest we could probably get to that is like, I don't know, like a, a candelabra getting elked and beating someone to death. Right? In Sorry, in what? In CDH? LED? Maybe. Yeah. Uh, is LED more expensive than oh, candelabra? Oh, you're talking about money-wise. Oh, just like, money-wise. Yeah. 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 Like, LED is <laughs> no, yeah. close to <laughs> The closest to like an Alpha Lotus getting... Yeah, probably, real quick. probably a candle. Um, yeah, probably a candlestick. Maybe like a tabernacle that got awakened got, and then somebody turned but, into an elk. <laughs> but Oko in CDH, I've seen a lot of discussion on this. In CDH, instant speed interaction is way more valuable because you have three opponents. Being able to commit it as late as possible is important. And also with three opponents to attack him, he's just not that survivable. So the only deck I'd I've thought that he could work in was Tassiger specifically because you have such easy access to something that blocks three threes rather effectively and you are trying to play that long game shutting off people's commanders like elking a Thrasios over and over again seems... Oh god, I'm so not looking forward to people jamming <laughs> Oko and just elking me. But don't just start putting Oko in decks because he's good yeah. in other formats. It's there. There's. I think we've covered this before, right? But like, there's there's a difference for card evaluation in this format versus almost any other format. Because for sure, four people is a lot. It's a lot different. Yeah, a lot was, different stuff going on. I was on. actually reading an article, so it's not just that Oko's taking over every format. You know, there's some top tier pro players who are saying that Oko is the best planeswalker ever printed. Which I mean, kind of. You think, God, this this card is so boring, right? It's got like a just a plus two to make a food. What the hell is a food? How is a card that says food on it, make a food, the most powerful planeswalker, right? It just it has, you know, plus two make a food, plus one, you know, beast within almost. And uh like a minus five to do a little little switcheroo, but that is, is not why it's so powerful. But they're they're saying it's the most powerful planeswalker ever printed just based off the fact that it's seeing play in all these formats and having high impact. Now, I saw that he said in the article, and this was a, a pro player, that it was also very powerful in Commander. It kind of just made me uh, made me realize, you know, that <laughs> maybe maybe yeah. your uh, your skills at evaluating, you know, modern standard and uh, vintage legacy that doesn't necessarily carry over to. Uh, transfer over particularly yeah. well because i i mean I, be I wouldn't say even even in like casual that oko comes close to even being the strongest planeswalker and commander i i wouldn't say it's like the strongest planeswalker and commander by any stretch but like i would say that like it's probably a lot better in casual than it is competitive just because like it's it's like a fairly well sure, unanswerable it, thing early and turns off people's commanders but yeah like they're still like way better yeah i mean i feel like <laughs> the lower bound of the power level curve on what's the best planeswalker and commander you have to get to a pretty high power level before the answer isn't ugin yeah <laughs> yeah 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 and um, then and then you're looking at stuff like i mean potentially 
Teferi. Narset. Narset, yeah. Ashiok, potentially. Nyssa, who shakes the world. Nyssa, vital force. Those were both insane. One mana mana doubler Nyssa and... uh, (laughs) The one that all <laughs> I feel like those are still like level. very in like yeah, I feel like those are very outclassed by you, Ugin at like yeah. every power level except for I still think they're stronger than than yeah that dude okay being outclassed by Ugin <laughs> is yeah it's debatable in the sense that Ugin is much better in decks that need that effect because the they don't have access to it in their colors so if you're like mono green what, wait kind of what just like what color off. has access to exile everything. <laughs> That's not Ugin. Well, I mean, just right. like generic board wipes, like merciless, ex- uh, merciless eviction, and you know the white board wipes. In mid power, Ugin's good in any deck that can cast it. Yeah, uh, would agree. Yeah. Okay. Well, we're not a mid power right. podcast, so unfortunately, as much <laughs> as, as I'd love as to as much this- as as much as you'd like to be with Matt. Yeah, think about it. Then we could actually gonna... put into the north in our decks. It'd be great. Oh god, it's another oh one god. of my mid power decks. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so let's let's move on. And oh, the fact that I'm not allowed to mention mid power for this this episode of brewing is going to hurt. Yep. at all. Yeah, sure. Sure. <laughs> so yeah, let's let's get into the main topic, and that's how to brew in CDH. So let's. Uh, I'll I'll kick things off actually. So that's. First, first little subtopic we've got going on here is coming up with an idea. So that's this is you know you're you're getting out your little notepad, you're brainstorming all your ideas, you're just writing down names of cards, you're you're going on Scryfall, you're looking up legendary creature, and then you're just picking random stuff and you're throwing cards in it to make it CDH, right? That's that's how we're doing it. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, effectively. I mean, I my my Scryfall searches they were a bit more refined than that, but sure. Okay, okay. So <laughs> At a base how, form, yes. How do you refine your Scryfall searches? How do you come up with an idea for which commander you want to pick? Well, I mean that that's that's sort of a hard question, right? That like that's just basically inspiration. Well, I mean, so being creative. I think there's <laughs> I think there's sort of two approaches that you'll often see. One is you have a commander with a very unique effect and you decide you want to brew around that commander. Um, and that's a, a good starting place. Just looking at commanders that, you know, clearly lean you in some sort of unique direction. The other way you can sort of do it is you can come up with an idea for the deck. You know, you want to run some combo or some, you know, like you want to run some set of hate pieces and then, you go looking for a commander that supports that. Yeah, you're but, you're in uh, you're in Sans Red. Wow, guess what commanders work for literally any deck. <laughs> yeah, but uh, I think I think that the the key is if you want to make a CDH brew, is you have to come up with something that this deck is doing better than the existing options. Yeah, and it's uh, not even like it's not even necessarily like something that is like necessarily a big thing that it does better. But I feel like you you should like be hitting on an idea that like this this does something better or something more uniquely than existing options. I'm gonna actually fight back on this. I don't think you necessarily need to have it be better in some aspect. There's plenty of you know, viable or, or decks that would be viable that are just eclipsed by, you know, 
better commander pairs. So for well, instance, but I mean for you for could like build brewing a, in general. You could build a like Sultai Mimeoplasm or uh Sultai Damia deck, right? Those are gonna be like on the very fringes of, of viability. But you can I mean Mimeoplasm can kind of do reanimator stuff pretty uniquely. But let's, I mean, let's go with Damia. Single card combo with a tomb. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Let's go Not let's bad. go with Damia because Damia is one where it's basically supposed to be a value engine in the command zone, except it's super expensive, so you're it's just outclassed by Thrasios Timna. So you could well, it's build also just a, outclassed wait, by but I don't Cassigers. think that's necessarily true. <laughs> like I think I think you're taking a very narrow definition of what it means to do something better. Like what if you wanted to play a value engine commander uh, and you also wanted to play like I mean, obviously they're not clasms in black, but like those you know massacre and like you wanted to generally keep the board clear of creatures like that could be an option there like that's okay this this often- might this might be a, a good counter example to specifically damia but that's that's not really the point i'm trying to make here the point i'm trying to make is that you there might not be a case where your commander has some super unique aspect that you can kind of build into or that you're not trying to build into that with this with your commander choice but that doesn't mean it's not a something worth exploring as a brew just for the sake of you know being a hipster or trying to maximize uh you know throw, throw people for a loop by having a different commander um, well or just flex your 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 brewing skills so this is this is sort of actually what i was talking about when i wrote that parentheses into the title of <laughs> and feel good about brewing um, is because I feel like in order to be satisfied with a brew or to like feel good about building a deck and putting a hundred cards together, um, and not just at the end of it thinking, "Wow, why isn't this in this commander instead? Why am I not just playing five color with this instead? Why am I not just doing whatever?" And actually feeling like you accomplished something and feeling like you put a unique deck together or you put a deck together that you're happy with. Um, I feel like it's fairly important to find something that makes the deck unique. Yeah, I, I, I can agree to that, but I just don't want to put the notion into people's head that they shouldn't be, you know, if someone wants to brew the, the version of, you know, modern mono green, storm you know like the next version of selvala you can do that with Gorkla. you can do that with galta there's there's so many different ways you can do it in with these different commanders that it's you know it's it's worth it's worth considering just to do if you you know want to have a fun exercise you can and you can still bring it to tables and it'll be fine i mean monogreen selvala is probably a good example because that deck isn't super strong right so you know the a slightly worse version of uh a not super strong deck yeah you're probably not going to notice too big of a difference depending on how big that delta is but it's still it's still something that there can be merit in exploring if not just for a uh creative exercise well i think i think the point that this was trying to make is that like obviously it's hard to come up with you know you can always come up with something that theoretically the deck does better but like for example what would you ever play a thrasios rayhan deck like i don't know what it maybe it's some like sultai adnaz consult 
through like it's CST. We just swapped it's, him out for Rayhan. Wait, I have to wait, wait. I have to come up with a farm name for this. Give me a second. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I see no, the there's point no you're Timna. To it's make. not a farm deck without Timna. It's Brad Farm. <laughs> Locked <laughs> in. <laughs> it's not a farm deck without Timna. That's what it's called now. Nope. <laughs> can't can't convince me otherwise. Like we just take, C, take CST, <laughs> cut the white cards, and run Rayhan in place of Timna. Like why? Yeah, I, I suppose there's not really a good motivating factor for it, right? It, but that it's one, just like it's just yeah. like that's what I was getting at is like it's it's feeling satisfied with your brew. You sh- you should usually like figure out a way, basically just like to justify having built the deck. Your justification Again, is that the War three three is a <laughs> a great attacker. <laughs> <laughs> to not Dude, trigger puts, Timna because you dropped puts Timna. Counters on stuff. Dude, yeah, if man, you sacrifice it to a life's legacy, you can then put the counters on to a devoted druid and oh, then use stop, the devoted druid stop. for extra it's just, mana. It's the it's it's prom punch, but you've just got no hasty creature. It's it's a food chain. Yeah. That's a that's a better one. Play Rayhan Ludovic food chain. Oh, yeah, there you God. go. <laughs> all right but yeah so sort of wrapping that part of it up um yeah like figure figure out a way figure out a way to be like hey what what am i doing differently what's what's my like interesting take on this what's my creative thing that's gonna wow people when i built this deck right and, it doesn't and it doesn't even necessarily doesn't, have to be like yeah. a major theme it's just like yeah just just something that makes you want to build the deck that is unique and like I think one of the great ways to look for that, and this is what I've done with a bunch of my brews, is looking for like hate or stacks pieces that you can support. Like take a deck, for example, when I was brewing like a Thrasios Crom sort of controly Thrasios mana deck, I went like, you know, I started with the idea that I wanted a deck that could run Blood Moon type effects and also Grafdigger's Cage. And like that was, that was the baseline for the deck. And you know, would it have been better if I'd played something else? And you know, something with black instead of Crom. Like if I just played Thrasios Vile Smasher, like maybe. But you know, it was like, can you play Blood Moon in Thrasios Vile Smasher? Not really. I want to see how what Blood Moon does to this meta. You know, like. So that's a that's a good place to start looking for ideas that are different. Yeah, and like the holy grail of this one is like humility, right? Oh God! <laughs> like all the time, pretty much have been tried. Pretty much every everybody has had their humility phase, but it's like it's stuff like that that like makes you want to brew, right? And things that like makes you satisfied with a brew that even if it's not good at the end, and even if you hate it and it's terrible, you're still you're still sort of satisfied that you got the deck together and you sort of got the idea out into the world. See what what terrifies me though is that one day we are going to get the humility deck and it's going. <laughs> Be, this is gonna be the worst thing ever. It's gonna be like an ever. eminence commander that draws cards, and it's gonna oh, be the worst God. thing ever. Yeah, making me shiver. Yeah, uh, so we're gonna get. Well, we're gonna get some like three mana blue white planeswalker commander. No, it's when we're going, guys. Clearly, it's when we go back to Theros, and they're gonna have the new cycle of gods, and there's gonna be like some three CMC god that's a card advantage engine. That's. You know, three colors. Is, is that's, actually, that's actually some really interesting tension where, like, you you have the humility play, and you're like, "Well, I can't have too much devotion in play because I don't want my tar- my card <laughs> engine to turn off." So I just gotta I gotta keep my devotion down so I can keep drawing cards. <laughs> yeah. So one one point I want to emphasize before we kind of wrap this up because we were we were saying or Morgan was making the point about 
designing, you know, top down from the commander or picking the archetype first and then, you know, finding a commander that suits that uh, particular archetype or strategy. There's there's other ways you can uh, you can deck build and maybe these aren't as common, but I know people who have who came up come up with the name for their deck before before even uh. deciding the strategy or anything and <laughs> oh, building from that angle. That's yeah. middle out deck building. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's there. You can all kinds of strange factors can motivate uh, what you're doing. So, uh, you know, and and brewing brewing at CDH isn't just limited to um, you know budget list top tier uh, CDH. Like you can you can brewing cdh in budget right like you can there's some people who have um not uh, not but completely budgetless right so they don't like to play with cards like led uh, mana crypt maybe not all the duels but there is still a very wide space to explore there so there there is some brewing you know to on on that aspect as well in terms of budget so definitely something to consider really? that you're, being you're said we're encouraging probably gonna... letting the poors into the format <laughs> oh god <laughs> That being said, we're probably going to focus on mostly budgetless discussion here, or assuming that you have access to a playgroup that accepts proxies or you play online yeah. in some sort of fashion. Um, I, I just want to. I just wanted to point. Like, it I, just make it clear that yeah, it's there a thing, are like, there are other yeah. aspects that can motivate it, and you can draw inspiration from. So yeah, and oh, there yeah. Are, there are definitely decks like that work a lot better if if everyone in your playgroup was sort of you know, had the rule, or not the rule, but sort of the idea that they weren't playing with cards that are multiple hundreds of dollars, then there are definitely decks that work in that sort of format that are outclassed if you play budgetless. And so you can definitely, like, people when they make budget decks often start with a non-budget deck and then just start sort of paring it down. But there is also room to explore in sort of semi-budget areas archetypes that just don't have the cards to make it in budgetless areas but have i introduced you to the greatest pairing of all time which is deck building restrictions and hackball (laughs) 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 yeah yeah yeah. i've heard hackball is the world's most consistent deck Oh, it's literally tier zero. Yeah, dude. Oh my god, it just it does it all the time. I don't get it. It just always wins. Okay. Well. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. So that's that's a good summary for you know what what can motivate a deck and and your your deck selection. But I think the most important area, and this is kind of clued in based off how much time we spent talking about it, is what does your deck do uniquely? So that's that's. I think going to be the primary focus of our our little advice section here and that's because it's generally the best thing to emphasize on right if you just you, you don't you don't want to just copy paste like you can if you do pick you know I was using the example of Damia and Thrasios Timna and like importing some kind of you know base Sultai shell like you could just copy paste over like some generic Sultai list into Damia and then call it a day but you want to generally when making a brew you want to emphasize and take advantage of its unique aspects so how do we go about doing that welp i think we should touch on deck building first 
just like getting the deck up from scratch, right? I mean, sort of like the obvious next step from like coming up with the idea. Um, I wanted to get a piece of advice out of the way on this topic first, because um, I think I think it's something that like you really have to remember when you're brewing decks, because like even I like like everybody gets carried away with this at some point, right? Everybody ignores this piece of advice, which is it's okay to not put all of your spicy ideas into a single deck as soon as you have them. <laughs> Like if you if you have like these like all these ideas just floating around in your head the entire time and you're just like yeah I'm gonna I'm gonna stick in a I don't know I'm gonna stick in my this planeswalker shell that I've been thinking about playing and I've been you know like put in all these new wind cons and stuff and I'm gonna just like oh I'm gonna strip all the counter magic out of here I'm gonna play can attack instead yeah I say the biggest reason to kind of avoid this is not that it's inherently because this is something that's not going to pan out or, you know, it's not going to be the optimal design. But it's it's mainly just because when you're, if you go to test it, right, it will, yeah, one, it it probably increases the chances (laughs) that if you're just trying a bunch of new things that it's not going to pan out. But, yeah, like I'm saying, it's not to say that that's impossible. Mostly that's going to be very hard to evaluate um, whether or not your, your spicy new changes and your your unique perspective and take on it is going to be effective if you've got you know a million different variables to consider and much also, easier like, to evaluate you know whether or not your particular unique uh take on something you know whether or not you're just going for instance let's use reed's cinnamon toast mid-range deck oh yeah you know whether or not you're just jamming a bunch of you know solid mid-range value cards how does that pan out you know, evaluating whether or not that pans out based off the sole inclusion of those and kind of a more standard regular shell is a lot easier than if he's also, you know, yeah, throwing in a bunch of planeswalkers and you know, oh, dude, I'm gonna, random I'm gonna, I'm gonna go into five color. I'm gonna make it an ember cleave deck. I'm gonna yeah. oh, I'm gonna get everything into it. <laughs> ember cleave hot deck. <laughs> but yeah, also like coming at it from like another angle too, like. If you try to fit all of your spice into one deck at once and like all shove all of your ideas and try to fit it all into a hundred cards, you're not really paying full respect to any of your ideas. Like you're just sort of like you're a lot of the time you're just gonna sort of end up like half-assing most of them because you just like can't focus on all of them at once, right? This kind of goes with what I was saying about, you know, what does when we were talking about what does your what's the unique aspect of your brew? If you pick something, it's much you, you it's much easier to maximize that unique aspect when there's only a single unique aspect to to maximize, right? You're not trying to find you're not trying to take two things and then find, you know, some like local maximum in between, right? Where where they're in like the op, there's the optimal amount of cards in each, you know, particular engine. That is a difficult task. Much oh my easier God. to just nobody nobody solves the, that ever. Yeah, much easier to just pick the uh you know oh wow these are the you know 10 best mid-range grindy cards and call it a day (laughs) yeah like i think i think you know you need to have something that makes your deck different or better in some respect or unique but you also you don't want to have too many things because then it stops actually like even if no one's done it before you don't have unique aspects you just have this like pile of cards that doesn't have <laughs> like it 
if if your unique aspect, you know, typically it's going to be something that's like more extreme than any other deck. Like you went like, okay, I went even deeper down this path than any other deck. But if you start jamming in like six different ideas, you're not going to get deep down any of those paths because you just want of the space. Yeah, it could it could turn out that one of the ideas um, was actually just you know very solid, but you didn't you didn't invest enough uh, if resources into it. Pair like, it with this Flicker Super Friends package. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like some some ideas might only become fruitful after you invest a certain portion of your deck into that strategy. You know, uh, mid range cards. Poor example because they're generally going to pay off for you know, fairly fairly low investment. People tend to splash a couple mid range cards in most decks these days. Yes, well, in the online meta anyway. Yeah, like yeah. Ristic Study is very very splashable. <laughs> current current all star. Yeah, like most decks. <laughs> but if you're you know only if you're going down the humility package and you're trying to also do like. You know some other stuff. It, you might not, you might not be profiting enough off of your humility or, or breaking symmetry enough off of the humility for it to be worth it. So, yeah, different different things to consider. And also, like I think something about this sort sort of just on the same path quickly um, is like, don't be afraid to like if you didn't realize that you were working with too many things at once when you started building the deck. Like, don't be scared or like trying to hesitate to like just try stripping out a package if you think it's too much or like hmm, this is this is too clunky this isn't working i'm like i'm just gonna try taking stuff out and like putting more generic stuff in and seeing if i can get more out of this other thing that i want to be doing instead yeah that makes sense yeah um and then the next i think the next thing we have to talk about in deck building is uh staples so you just take like you have a generic list of all the different staples and you just copy paste them in when you're starting a new deck right don't even yeah. think how about else it. how else are you going to get all I mean, the brews out the second after spoilers are released right? I, I, hey we'll touch on that later <laughs> hey hey you stop you stop jumping ahead um but like honestly it's a bit of a joke but like yes you should always start with a deck of staples in your colors <laughs> well Okay, but I think that people do also just to jam staples into their decks without really yes. considering what yes. it is the deck's trying to do and whether or not the staples actually fit in the deck. One of the different being, there's tiers of staples. There's like, tiers of staples <laughs> yes. for sure. There's there's never a time where you can justify not running demonic tutor if you're in black. Uh, we should yeah. make a staples tier list. <laughs> the staples. We'll just call the can, episode oh. tier list, and then, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah and like monic tutor, vampiric tutor, yeah, mana crypt. More things, more things like you know the the sta staple interaction is is the one where you'll see this the most. Yeah, uh, I, I, I still is a think staple, right? It goes I in still, every. Deck. Oh yeah, dude, my hard control deck. Mm, get it in here. I do think. I do think though that like while you might not end up and you probably won't end up keeping every staple that you start with i do think it's a good idea to start a deck with a package of staples well but get i all think your, get all your I like you generic look at you should take a look at a package of staples and then consider each one as you put it in the deck don't just blind yes. copy paste yeah one, yes. one advantage of doing it that way as, as morgan was saying is that 
it really helps you think about the deck and the strategy you're going for because you're when you, when you're when it's always present in your mind it might help you you know think of other aspects of it also just help you pilot better you know if you're running if you're into, aware of what's in your library at a given point in time yeah like like so for instance with anafenza uh raspberry jam my my uh, anafenza kind of Razaketh stacks list it it runs lots of hate bears it runs eidolon of rhetoric um uh other sworn canonist for for you know rule of law effects but it doesn't run actual rule of law or deafening silence now if i'm kind of just making a generic importing over a generic uh staples list from you know stack stacks you know there's lots of stack stacks that do run those cards in those colors so why would i not want to do that now, if I'm putting in just a little bit of thought, I can think ahead and be like, oh, you know, those cards might interfere with my main avenue to winning the game. And unlike uh, the Ride Along Rhetoric and Ethersworn Canis that are creatures that I can sack to Razaketh to get rid of pretty quickly, I'm going to be stuck with the rule of law in play and Deafening Silence in play after I remove or after I reanimate Razaketh. And it after i cast my reanimation spell there's not a whole lot i can do about uh uh rule of law unless they give me you know some cycling card that can yeah just cycle your resounding wave when are you such an amateur (laughs) if you guys haven't noticed yet this entire episode is just a full excuse for linton to justify his spice in all of his decks (laughs) we'll we'll get there Um, eventually we're in the raspberry jam part of the (laughs) part of the episode right now yeah where we've got we've got a a few more brews to come (laughs) oh yeah yeah, I, th- I think uh, I think it's a pretty good example of why you should actually put a bit of thought into the staples you're you're porting over. Yes, but also player staples. Yeah, <laughs> play, player there's, staples. There's no fast to, to not just l- at least yeah. evaluate every single staple. Oh yeah, like and like just <laughs> always evaluate all the staples. I can't stress it enough. I don't like. I'm, I'm going to say the same thing so many times, but like God, <laughs> the amount of times I've seen people just like. You you like you make a brew and it doesn't have a staple in it and then you play the deck and you're just like oh this is pretty good and somebody's like why don't you have the staple in it and you're just like well you know I've been playing it without the staple why should I have the staple in it and you forget how good it is and then it all goes downhill and you lose all your credibility. I feel like I always <laughs> the staple I always forget to include is Sylvan Library. I percent a hundred percent of the time forget to put Imperial Seal into my decks. Every time, I just don't understand without how fail. that happens. <laughs> no, okay, you know what? Civil Library just like doesn't fit with any of the other like staple packages in my mind. the The issue is that Civil Library fits as an enchantment, and I know that I should always have three enchantments in my deck. <laughs> so when I only have two, I'm just like, oh, what, what's the other one? I don't know the exact number of sorceries in any given deck, and also when you type tutor into anything ever. Imperial Seal doesn't come up, so I'm just like, yeah, it's fine. <laughs> we'll play Mystical Tutor, Worldly Tutor, Enlightened Tutor, Vamp Tutor. So this is this tutor. is a good good way to kind of some actual practical advice for for deck building and brewing, and that's going to be how you're sourcing your list of staples. So as Reed as Reed uh, kind of pointed out, there's you actually we can we can kind of do it this way. Reed Reed is is one camp. Morgan's another, and then I'm I'm yet another camp okay so read read how he does it from his explanation is that he's going to go on to scryfall and he's going to look up certain you know keywords to generate his list he's like you know what 
I know my deck needs tutors. It's going to go on Scryfall. I'm going to look up tutors tier. and I'm going to dump those into the list. And, you know, it's like, oh, well, you know, demonic tutor, all that, all that vampire tutor, all that good stuff is going to show up easy, you know, call it a day for my tutors and then move on. And then cantrips uh, and then manifolds. Et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And, and is dual land. Morgan, Morgan is going to go ahead and think of card categories more or less uh, and then fill those in just from memory. I'm guessing Morgan. Yeah. I mean, I do um, have lists on tapped out, but I very rarely look at them. I just kind of, yeah, most of us, most of us uh, can list, list uh, a lot of the staples by memory. Yeah. So. It happened it's, once that I typed a deck into tapped out and it was 100 cards with no typos. I was thrilled. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. So myself, what I'll do is I'll go look at similar lists, either that I've brewed in the past, um, or you know someone else in the database has done. Honestly, generally, what I'll do is I'll come up with a deck idea, and then I'll I'll go look at all my decks that have you know contain those colors. So when I was brewing Anafenza, I looked at Gitrog, even though those decks don't have the similar strategy at all. Coming up with a list of staples, you know, thing about staples is they just be in almost any deck that can run those colors. So that was pretty easy to come up with all the Golgari staples that I can at least throw in and kind of evaluate after that. And then looking at, you know, other decks and I'll, I'll even go, I'll even go and look at, uh, Thrasios Timna decks, you know, decks that have colors that aren't in my, or that, that contain colors that I don't contain just so I can look at the cards that they think are the most important ones to include in your color. Right. So in Thrasios Timna, uh, after I grab my Gitrog list, you know, I need to fill up my white staples. So if I look at Thrasios Timna lists, oh, Silence, uh, E-Tutor, you know, things so like that. So basically, you just go to Pongo's Najila list and, yep. just, and just pull <laughs> just the a entire pile of staples. <laughs> you just, all right, let's take out the wind cons from here. Let's take out Najila. Perfect. All right, got a list. Yeah. We're good to go. Send it. But yeah, so there's there's merits to each. I I will advocate for my strategy in terms of newer of players. Of course you will. Being, <laughs> I think I think being being going referencing other people's lists is the easiest way to ensure you don't have glaring omissions. Oh yeah, yeah no, for like sure. I, I I agree with just like if you're if you're new to the format or if you're not quite comfortable in your internal encyclopedia of staples or cards that see play um just like pulling up a few lists that are close to what you want or like cl are close to what you're envisioning and just like pulling cards out of them is a great way to start a list off yeah, certainly i got my list of mental what my mental list of staples by like playing decks and looking at decks and playing against decks i didn't just like yep. think of it one day and be like these are the staples i'm gonna play that's why i put mind static in every deck yeah. Um, and, and one thing, one thing I'll add about uh, this particular strategy. Now I was saying, you know, sometimes I'll look in decks that have colors I don't contain. It's also just, yeah, don't, don't purely limit yourself to looking at decks for, for staples or for certain things for just the decks that are on a similar strategy. I mean, that's the surefire easiest way to do it. But if you're trying to really maximize a deck, you do want to explore Honestly, what I'll do is I'll explore almost every deck that contains the colors I'm looking for on the decklist database just to make sure there isn't some 
like, you know, really niche strategy and deck that actually aligns very similarly with what I want. Um, that isn't, you know, obvious. Like there might be some weird card in Sadisi Brood Tyrant lists that has just the perfect synergy for what I'm looking for, but that the other decks have optimized out. So sometimes you will get very clever little pieces of tech that way. Um, but that's haven't the that, other decks just optimized out Sadisi Brood Tyrant? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Didn't that happen? Yep. <laughs> yes, but um, we're we're this is well, not not necessarily all of the Sadisi Brood Tyrant tech that might be useful for. The while we're tyrant, looking at um, like deck building cards as well, I sort of want to drop in um, a lot of time. Honestly, it's not if if you're aware of it. Um, first of all, it can be a not terrible idea to just go on EDH rec and look at a commander if you're like building a specific commander because. Honestly, like sometimes there's very well known tech in more casual EDH for a commander that like you just hadn't considered. And it's actually not bad. Yeah, well, like, also it's on just EDH like deck, I would play. Some of the decks, some of the decks are almost just because um, you know that they they pull from average deck lists. Yep. Or that they they source it. You know they've got a little uh, web crawl or something that's yes. going around to all these these websites pulling their decks. Now a lot of these decks aren't or, or i'm not gonna say a lot some of them aren't very popular in casual so they're predominantly all the cards listed on edh rec are from the competitive lists this is something for, you can for, see for if you go on the yes. godo page yeah. right godo is not a very popular until helm the host was printed it was like below dao chan on the edh rec mono red commanders which is absurd uh why dao chan's great <laughs> <laughs> um, but so when when Helm the Host came out, it more than doubled in the number of decks that it's got on on EDHREC. And so if you look there, it's largely colored by the uh, the competitive decks. So you can still, depending on the commander, you know, it might if you're going for something like a competitive Marin list, you're probably going to get you know clouded by the casual crowd because that's one of the most popular decks. Same thing with Gitrog, but. You can, depending on your commander, still get some nice CDH tech from EDH Rec. So also don't, you don't can, count that out. You can go on EDH Rec and do filters to refine a little bit. Like it still won't be yeah. you know just a competitive deck list, but if you only look at Marin decks with a Bayou and a Mana Crypt in them, or like, I don't know, a Bayou and a Protean Hulk or whatever, you know, pick pick some cards that will filter out a lot of the more casual lists. You might find that through you know high power Marin decks are running this tech card and go oh yeah that you know I mean Marin's not a great example because it's such a popular deck that you know the it's, ideas it's are also like fairly obvious in general yeah, it's, but, also, it's also fairly but. obvious but like looking at some deck that sees some amount of play you know and and then filtering into things that will orient you towards more competitive brews of that list like not every deck with duels in it is is competitive like the command zone play duels sometimes but uh you know it it will certainly orient you towards people who are playing stronger decks yeah and just it, it exposes you to more cards and just like helps you build up an idea of what you're doing right also, just once more, taking it even a step further than looking at EDH rec. Honestly, if you're like building around like weird cards, like Commander or whatever, honestly, looking at decks from other formats is 
not a bad idea either sometimes. A lot of the time, like, some of the card choices, or most of the card choices won't apply because 1v1 formats, life, all that stuff. But you can definitely look for inspiration in tech cards and, like, potential sleeper tech and sleeper stuff. <laughs> Um, look at the ban list. Deck. The legacy ban list. Oh yeah. <laughs> look at look at ban lists from other formats for inspiration. Yeah. <laughs> um but yeah, just like like stuff like like how like food chain came about in uh in CDH, right? Like food chain is like a tier three uh legacy deck. And you just like people ported it over and eventually it became food chain sliver, right? Like just like looking at like potential ideas from other formats is a great way to come up for inspiration to fill out lists and come up with more ideas. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Now we've got we've got our core engine that's you know the maximizing the unique aspect of our deck. We've put in our list of staples. We've got let's. Let's say we don't have our perfect 99. Maybe we have, you know, but we have, we have, plus or minus. We some. have like 120 ish. We're just sitting on some extra yeah. cards. We're trying to figure Actually, it out. That's, still. that's an interesting. Yeah. I think another thing that is, it's something that I do when brewing decks is go over 100 cards, like just start tossing stuff in. And then, like, then when you realize you have 80 non land cards, you know, then go back and look at like, okay, is there a package I can cut here? You know, can I trim, you know, I'm running, you know, I'm running opt as well as ponder preordain and brainstorm. Like, do I really need opt? You know, like look for places to trim, but don't be afraid to go over a little bit initially, just so you can sort of have all your ideas in one place and then consider them rather than, you know, not like, you have an idea, you go, oh, well, I don't think I'll have space. You leave it out, and then you never come back to it. Yeah, so the the, the segue I was trying to make was into refining the deck. And yes. Morgan, Morgan, this is a great, you know, intro topic for for this, for the subject. Because oftentimes with, with sculpting, what is the, uh, what is that piece of advice? You know, it's much easier to remove a piece of uh, material than it is to add a piece of material. Yeah. Right, or, so or like haircuts, yeah, <laughs> sculpture, haircuts, same thing. Yeah, so it's much better to start with a large selection of cards. I mean, you know, ultimately, when you're first starting brewing a deck, your your deck kind of has a uh, you know thousands of cards in it because you've got you're containing. If you want to look at it that way, you're containing all possible uh, all possible combinations of of cards in your colors, but <laughs> you. Once you, get a, you, once you get a manageable, a manageable number of cards in your deck, somewhere like you know between one, I wouldn't say greater. I would say less than one fifty. One fifty is a lot, but <laughs> that's when you can so start. Say less than like one twenty. I was yeah, one one twenty is like my one fifty is what I would consider the upper bound of you know a brew. But once you once you get around there, you can start you know kind of whittling it down to get to the actual final nice sculpture that you would like the nice final build of the deck i mean it's not going to be the final final build you're still going to have to go through there's further things you can go through for the refining process but this is the first major step in terms of refining the deck um so one thing i like to do it this is this is going to be for for in terms of you know getting down to your 99 cards 
people different have everyone is going to have a, a unique process well i mean some people are going to have the same process but there's many different ways you can approach this uh personally i'm kind of visual and i like to imagine as if you know some people actually pull out the physical cards and maneuver them around the closest thing to that for me is architect so i like going on architect you get to make custom categories so you can kind of be like oh this is my card draw this is my removal um and it's nice and that you can manipulate each card around you know throw it in the maybe board the sideboard um so these are these, this is kind of how i go through it you can kind of be like oh you know this is my third tier choice second tier choice first tier choice etc etc so that's that's kind of how i do it do you guys have any uh basically advice for this how i get from like 120 cards down to 100 or something like that is i pull it up on a deckless site of some sort and then i stare at the list for a while and then i notice that i start to hate some cards more and more as i look at them and i'm just yeah. like why the why the fuck is this in the list god get this out of here i hate this and then i take that out and then i look at it again and i repeat until i'm down to about 100 or maybe a bit more than 100 and then i actually have to start choosing <laughs> oh one thing one thing i would like to add to this as well is that i think it's really valuable so when i brew these decks i will kind of I won't start on what is essentially going to be the the final list, right? So you, you could have your list of, you know, 120 cards, cut it down to 99 just by removing all the other stuff and then, you know, call it a day. What I like to do is I like to start with that. I'll make two copies, right? One copy is going to be the good copy. That's where I'm going to delete all my extra card choices and whatnot. But the first copy is going to be where I keep, it's basically a, a list of all the cards, you know, when I was looking through Scryfall or, or whatever that I thought might be interesting because it's something that when you go back, when, when you go to refine the deck after playing it for, you know, doing, getting some play testing done, you might look back at that and be like, huh, you know, maybe I was a bit too harsh on this, this, uh, this card when I was first evaluating it, or there's, there's not, you know, there's something, some aspect of it I didn't realize because it's useful to have a list of playables to go back and reference so don't don't just delete all the cards I, that you I, pulled I, out I, I was i was being a bit facetious in a couple of ways but yeah like it's it's less like ripping it out of the deck entirely and more just moving it into the maybe board yeah get a it's always good to have a nice fat maybe board <laughs> lots of my brews end up having like 90 card maybe boards <laughs> I, I like don't use maybe boards and i feel like i should but I don't know. I just I don't know. I I feel like whenever I use maybe boards in a brew specifically, like I'll end up like adding like forty cards in a maybe board, and then I never touch any of them ever again. <laughs> I feel like the problem, the thing that maybe boards do for me that I don't like is they make it hard for me to consider like new ideas because like I'll think like oh I could try this card, and then I'm like, but I already have like fifteen cards in the maybe board. If I can find a slot, I should add one of those, and then. Like, you know, it, it makes it makes a new card that I haven't considered before have to jump through more hurdles than a card that I have considered before. And I feel like that that makes me more likely to sort of dismiss things that without fully considering them. Yeah, so kind of the ultimate the ultimate thing to to say with uh, in regards to getting down to the 99 is make sure you can justify every single card in your list. That's, I mean, hopefully by the time you get down to, you know, 
the last five or six cards and you've got like a yeah, hundred i mean the including lands you've got like a 105 card list you should even be able to justify all the cards on the maybe board um and then it's just whichever argument is kind of wins out yeah but you should have a very compelling reason for each card uh before you you get to your, your final product but well also just in general um this is sort of the stage a lot of the time when you like bring the deck to some deck server or whatever, or like you just like show it off to somebody and maybe like ask for their help, ask for opinions, even just like talking. And at the time that you're doing that, it's like you can, you can definitely find out that your justifications are weak on some cards, but I think it's like by the time you're showing it to somebody, you should have fairly solid justifications for everything. Yeah, and this is this or, kind of is, or just be willing to change them because sometimes yeah. that's a good approach to it too. Like you can show someone a list and be like, "I don't know if I love like these three cards." You know, what do you think? But yeah, don't be unwilling to cut cards that you don't actually have a solid reason to justify them. Yeah, yeah, and and this is gonna this is gonna help with our kind of next topic or next subtopic, which is gonna be discussion with other brewers slash deck builders. Um, because as as uh, someone put in the show notes here, some people will not accept justifications for your card choices, no matter what the card choice is, if it's off the beaten path. So the fact that you have a strong justification for it is going to be important in terms of trying to uh, convince other people. Um, now, this definitely goes both ways. For, oh, yeah. Like this, is, <laughs> yeah. this is a very oh, yeah. difficult balance to strike. It's easy to, and like, to be clear, I've certainly been guilty of this with brews that I've posted. Um, I'm fairly sure just about everybody has, right? Like, yeah, no, I just, I don't want to, you know, make it seem like it's like, Oh, we'll see. I understand how to do it. Right. Um, It's a delicate balance between figuring out what, like when some people just don't like, maybe they don't see it or they don't really understand what the list is doing or they just, they understand what the list is doing and they just don't like the idea and they don't really care whether like if your question is, here's the, here's the idea Do these cards work and they don't like the idea. They'll go, no, of course the cards don't work, but you also need to not get too attached to your inclusions in, in your decks, unless you have an incredibly solid reason, because I've seen people like they have some card that they really like and you're going like, it just, doesn't really seem to work it doesn't fit with the theme it doesn't seem that good and like you have to be able to take that criticism too you know if a lot of people are telling you to reevaluate a card maybe that's a sign that it's not just one you know it's not just one person who doesn't want to accept it maybe take another look yeah it's like it's something like i think it also something about this is like learning to separate your want to play a card from your want to play a deck and thinking about maybe the cards that I want to play don't necessarily fit in this deck that I have or this deck that I want to play and maybe it's worth it to either cut the card out of the deck to I know continue you working might, on the deck or I know you might think you've cracked the humility <laughs> code but <laughs> or, I don't think you did or potentially one. even and like this one's rough but I've done it 
a couple of times actually is cut the deck to try to put the card somewhere else. <laughs> if oh. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, just like make sure that you're make sure that if you're attached to a card, you understand why you're attached to the card and maybe it doesn't actually fit in the deck that you're trying to fit it in. Don't 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 couple your want to play a card with your want to play a deck or your want to brew a deck. Yeah, you can you can kind of um, ruin both if you if you're trying to force something there. You might you might ruin a, a perfectly valid brew by trying to force something where it shouldn't, or a nice piece of tech by putting it in a brew that makes it yeah. look bad. Yep. yep. <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah. And but yeah. So this is kind of feeding off of discussing with other brewers slash deck builders. This is one thing. One thing that people have, and this is. I can understand where it's coming from, but some people are very protective of their brews. So they're reluctant to get others involved for the fear that it's going to become someone else's project. Or I mean, to, to be fair, it, there's also the fear that it just becomes an absolute shit show, which does happen. Yeah. Like, like sometimes, <laughs> sometimes people might not want to, um, you know, let's say, let's say you're tr- someone's trying to get their first deck onto the deck list conglomerate, right? Maybe they don't want, you know, to have 50 names stapled to it in terms of the, you know, the credit section as well. So this is something that you kind of just have to get over in terms of like ego. If you want to get the, your, your, uh, the optimal. God, that was so brutal. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I was was expecting a lot more sugarcoating of that one. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's just. People who have experience brewing have a lot of valid advice to offer. Now, just because someone has their name on a lot of brews on the deckless database doesn't mean they're going to be giving you the perfect advice for your brew. Yeah, I mean, right? like, look at Noobs, right? He has three lists on the database. And, and he just uh, gives nothing but bad advice. Like, gonna say, just consistently Urza, terrible advice. Urza is an example where there's, you know, uh, our friend's friend of the show keegan came out with an urza list slash um primer that we shouted out i think two episodes ago and you know it's it deviates a fair amount from the standard urza list now if he was to go and ask the people who curate this standard urza list reed siggy uh lurker and shaper his urza list would end up looking almost exactly like theirs because that's how deck building advice works if someone on the git rug server asked me what they think you know an ideal git rug deck list should look like i'm gonna send them a link to my list because i'm not gonna my list isn't you know something that i think is non-optimal so you're 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 gonna get if you ask if you're asking certain people you're gonna get decks in a certain style so you can you can definitely take their advice um and not you know follow it to the t but it's definitely a good way to make sure you're considering all aspects of something or have them a good thing to do is uh, i love doing this on like the git rock discord for instance is when new players come along and they'll say why is this run or you know every now and then will someone will bring up a card that you know, will trigger a massive discussion. And this is when everyone kind of puts their best argument forward for a certain card. That's that's really where I think, you know, arriving at specific card choices is is best done. Instead of just, you know, you know, sick or, or sorry, read uh 
lists a card from Urza. He's like, yep, this should just be in your list. You should be running Legacies Allure no matter what. I'm sorry you think it's a bad card. Just run it. You know, making what? sure that he's it's defending card. his card choice <laughs> it's a is great uh, card. being put on blast. It kind of seems like you're being put on <laughs> Jesus blast. Christ. Yeah, making sure so he much can actually hostility. <laughs> making sure he can actually defend the the card choice to a. Uh, a level that you find satisfactory which i can before anybody asks i can <laughs> you could ask well. me a dm it's fine <laughs> um but yeah so taking taking people's advice you know getting advice from people who aren't building that particular deck but maybe something adjacent um and also kind of just trusting your gut and doing some actual play testing is a good way to arrive at something that uh, might be a unique approach and you might find something that other people overlooked now on the topic of playtesting, because there is something that you can do pre-playtesting. Um, because I think we've sort of talked about playtesting before in the context of like picking up new decks and like sort of brewing. So we might be treading over like retread ground, but we can touch it in a bit. But something you can do before playtesting a new brew that is actually very, very good at refining a list is literally just drawing hands. From the sample list i know tapped out has that functionality i think architect has it like you just load it onto something load it onto cockatrice whatever sleeve up proxies for a brew and honestly just drawing hands from a deck and like not even necessarily goldfishing although you can can be great in just revealing like sources of clunkiness or things that you didn't necessarily think about and like thinking about how a hand's gonna play out or thinking about hey like I thought this card was gonna be good but like just from drawing it in these hands like wow I never I I, I can't look at a hand that I have it uh, in and find a way that I want to cast it right and also just with yeah drawing sample hands too is also a thing that you can do in tandem with drawing sample hands also in real games as well, though, uh, testing games is a thing, again, something I believe we've talked about on the podcast before. If not, I endorse this all the time, so you probably heard me talk about this if you're on any Discord ever. But just doing uh, A-B testing, basically, where when you're thinking about potentially a card, you have like your list of like five cards that are on the cutting block, or like you want to like fit some cards into the deck and are thinking about potential cuts or whatever, just like trying to find space for stuff. Uh, doing uh, games or hands where you pick one of the cards that you were potentially going to swap out and just basically just like watching it and just monitoring it and whenever you draw it just think about if this was one of the other cards that I'm considering where would I be in this game like what what would the state of this game look like would I rather have it in my hand would it still be as bad here is this card that I have in my hand really good would I rather have one of the other ones it can really help you sort of narrow down cards that you actually want in your deck, right? Yeah, so one thing is actually a great resource in terms of an example of how this is done. Um, uh, my friend from the Goto Discord, insert clever phrase here, has a YouTube channel where he actually uploaded videos of him doing like A-B testing for Goto. So you can actually see like someone in the live process, how they go through this, like what, how he's, what he's thinking for all of these things, all of these choices, 
and and the actual process for going through it. So for those of you who've never done this sort of thing before, uh, we'll link that in the description. And this is just, I mean, it's going to be, is it's a bit boring to watch someone else do a bit of do some A/B testing uh, for a deck that you don't play. But just to kind of understand the process for it, uh, this is something. This is a good resource you can use to kind of emulate that for your own deck. Now, I will say, I think if it's the link I'm thinking of, it's definitely uh, it's more intensive than what you really need to do. Like oh yeah. He, he, First of all, he played games with both the cards in question, um, which was, what was it, Metalworker and... Kuldotha? No, I don't Kuldotha? know. He's done, he's done this a few times. I can't remember the okay. exact one. Well, anyway, so he, he'd take two cards and he'd goldfish like many, many hands with both of them, and that's definitely more intensive than you need to be. And also, you don't always find a card in your opener, right? I think one of the interesting aspects of a card including in your deck is like how often you you go to tutor for it as well mm-hmm. depend obviously depending on the type of card like yeah. you're not going to tutor for counterspell very often <laughs> that doesn't mean you don't run counterspell are you but, implying that I wouldn't tutor for a tutor you're out of your mind <laughs> but but when you are like when you're just playing a game think about like okay you're casting a tutor you know, maybe it's a stacks piece. You were considering you wanted to try and fit some stacks piece in your deck, and you went like, eh, it doesn't seem quite good enough. I'm just going to play, like, Ponder or Preordain. I didn't have a Preordain in my list, I'm going to play Preordain. Like, when you cast that tutor, you know, you can think like, okay, well, if this card was, I don't know, Suppression Field. If this Preordain was Suppression Field, like, would I want to find it off this tutor? Like, would that be something that's good? It's not just about when you draw it, because certain cards behave differently in games. Like, rather than just they do different things when you cast them, you know, you try and find them at different times, you have different ways of accessing them, you place different priorities on deliberately trying to access them. So, just thinking about that when you're trying to evaluate how a card you think might be in your deck. Yeah, that's a good point. Um... Okay, and just the final point before we wrap this up is that uh, just play testing and with with hands and and uh, doing A/B testing, gold fishing. This can give you ideas about places that you might want to go harder on. As Reed put it in this little note on on spice, but just you know, in generally the unique engine or aspect of your deck that you just want to emphasize more. It's. It's just, you know, maybe you might not have committed enough to that actual game plan. And through testing, you you can kind of, that, that kind of becomes obvious. So that, that's just something that you can pick up from goldfishing and A-B testing. Yeah, it's, it's not like, <laughs> as much as brewing might seem like it a lot of the time, when you end up gravitating toward four or five color meta ball. Um, <laughs> refining a deck isn't always just about turning it into a pile of staples gradually and stripping out all the spice out of it right like it's it's turning spice into established strategies right so like sometimes that does just mean like sometimes you need more spice sometimes i need to you need to swap up your spice a bit or like just like turn things a bit spicier go a bit brewier (laughs) yeah 
Okay, and with that, it's time to get into everyone's favorite segment. Gut check. Get check. Gut check. Oh, Morgan didn't give the deflated oh. gut check voice this time. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> Lyndon, you have, to, you have to do an ASMR gut check now. Gut check ASMR. Well, this week, this week, it's not myself who came up with the gut check. It's actually Morgan who came up with the gut check. So yeah, it is. No. Got outsourcing I labor. I know. I don't. I don't what get to have my like awesome advantage. One job, and yet. Uh, all right. So, the question is as follows: What card do you believe people most often tutor for when they shouldn't, with hidden tutors and revealed tutors? Two separate answers. So, Two separate answers. Oh mm. god! <laughs> I got. I had huh. my my like first answer. Yeah. Okay, I've got mine. Yeah, we're good. We're good. We're good. Yeah. All right. Who wants to kick things off? I'll kick things off. My answer is I. I feel this is why I don't like being on this side of the gut check. I love I love putting thought into my answers. Uh, oh well. Okay. So my first answer is going to be um, with most of the time. I'm. It's not super unique in terms of uh, hidden tutors, but I'll, most often you'll see like a. Spit demonic tutor or vampire <laughs> tutor imperial seal for an early game mana crypt and they really should be going for an early game soul ring it's such a lame answer but people die to their mana creatures <laughs> all the time hyper hyper <laughs> tiny optimization on the yeah. early game fast mana tutor and then the uh the other answer for uh revealed tutors is interaction people mystical tutor for force of will which god I damn think it is the wrong <laughs> <laughs> it's just See, okay so the thing times. is i'm angry about that because i thought i was gonna get morgan on that one because i think that's morgan's answer too but let <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> well, it before both of us was that where oh you're gonna put say that as well okay reed what's yours uh i think hidden tutor or sorry yes yes hidden tutor hidden tutor uh i think hidden tutors pre- people probably make mistakes um tutoring for usually like stacks pieces is the big one that i see um is like even like you'll you'll tutor for something with a hidden tutor and you'll and like people will get like a resident piece or something but people other people at the table will be like oh they got like a they got a combo piece well now we have to respect this all the time and it just like makes it way like it makes it so much less likely for you to actually land the stacks piece because people are like, well, like you obviously got a combo piece, so we're gonna have to deal with that at some point. And then hidden tutor is, I would also have to say interaction, or uh, sorry, revealed tutor. I would also have to say interaction because revealing that you have a counter spell to the table just immediately puts the onus of interaction on you. Yeah. It's just not a go, good time ever. Tutor a forcible unless you're literally right about oh, to dude. combo and you don't have. Um, and you don't have like the 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 mana like if you don't have the mana for like something like a fluster storm or whatever if you find a, a force of will and you're not trying to protect your combo going off immediately you are going to get wrecked someone's going to cast something that oh needs to be countered God. everyone's going to look to you and then you're going to exile you're going to cast your force of will and you're going to exile a card from your hand so yeah that one's pretty rough all right morgan what you got well first i did also get Matt's answers. He couldn't be live with us, but he is alive, so I asked him. 
And his answer for revealed tutors was force of will, just like everybody else. <laughs> uh, and he apparently didn't really have a good answer for hidden tutors. Wow. What uh, cop so, out. so I think uh, for revealed tutors, yeah, I have to go with interaction, particularly interaction that is very effective at stopping other people. You can get like, you know, one of the things that you can get that's interaction is like a veil of summer. Uh, because yeah, now, you know, when you are ready to go off, that protects you, but people can't lean on the fact that you have veil of summer to stop somebody else from winning. Uh, and I think that one of the things people most often incorrectly tutor for is, uh, wheels. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Let's, see, cool. let's hear it. What's cool. your justification? Yeah. Uh, my justification is that, um, like, obviously, if you're just tutoring a wheel and then casting it, fine. But I think that a lot of people um, assume wheels will resolve on their next turn cycle um, when they often won't. Like, I think people aren't great at evaluating how threatening other people find their wheels. Mm. And so I've seen people, you know, they play out a bunch of mana and then they tutor and you go like, well, they got a wheel, and they have two cards in hand and six mana on turn three. I don't think I'm going to let them resolve that wheel. Like, I'll also say that people who tutor wheels, the value of a wheel can change drastically in a turn cycle. Yeah. Right? Oh, yes. Everyone no, dumps their hand. Everyone's just sitting at, like, you know, one or two cards. You're sitting at, like, one or two cards plus a wheel. <laughs> if you cast that wheel, you're just gassing everyone up. So you've just, like, wasted a tutor on something that now is just super low EV to cast. So yeah, definitely uh, I definitely like had that. I like that point. Good point. Had hands where I'm like, yeah, I'll just go like turn one, you know, land dork, turn two, land like wheel. And then somebody goes like land, crypt, signet, carpet. And you're like, mm. <laughs> wow, great. <laughs> Don't know how I feel about this wheel. <laughs> uh, okay. I'm looking forward to what, uh, what other people have to say in terms of uh, gut check answers. Yeah, this one's yeah, definitely this, this an interesting one. one. To, to see what people respond when we put this up. Um, okay, and before we wrap up the show, we've got a couple listener questions. Uh, so this one comes from Chelky. Do you think budget decks can ever really be CDH, or is making a deck building decision for reasons outside of the game inherently against the spirit of the format? On a related note, how would you like the etiquette around playing decks that aren't strictly worse than established decks, but mostly that but that mostly are? Um, I kind of want to take these. I kind of want to take these in reverse order and start with uh, the etiquette of playing decks that aren't strictly worse. And I think, like, for me, as long as your deck, like, it doesn't have to be, you know, as good as the existing decks. It has. There are certain expectations, though, um, and I think that decks that aren't great but somewhat meet those expectations are. Uh, are fine even if they really don't actually belong at the table. Like, one of the big ones is just the interaction that you play. Like, I've seen some some decks where it's like, the person's playing mono blue and, you know, they have some card advantage commander. It's like a zombie. And it's like, oh, I don't play counter spells. You're like, okay, well, you know, if you're yeah. if you're showing up here completely not expecting to deal with any of the sort of threats that you're going to face at this table. I don't really think that's 
cool. And like those decks sometimes work. Like I've lost to just random mid-range casual decks because you know they're just over there dirtling while you're like everyone's just answering each other and they're like playing random creatures and attacking. But I don't think that that really enhances the game if they're not able to answer any sort of the threats that they're expecting. Yeah, I I sort of. I, I well not even sort of I, I definitely agree with that as well. Like if you're bringing a chanky deck or like just like a deck that is it not con- is not classically considered good, like you should still be taking on some of the responsibility of playing a game of CDH, um, and not just being like an empty seat at the table, right? Yeah, I mean sometimes that's. That you that can't be helped. Like if someone's like got like they're they're playing a new you know mono black Sadisi equivalent, right? Like when Goto was first spoiled, it was like very all in. Um, just you know every single ritual, fast mana, every like just no nothing, no stacks or almost no stacks. And in that case, you know what? Sometimes when you're when you're testing something out, if it's jank, just to see if it works. You can't you can't always be there for interaction. You can't well, always be counted on for interaction, but the all in yeah. Godo decks were threatening wins on turn three or four with reasonable regularity. Like that's also you know, that the glass cannon combo deck is a part of CDH. Like it's not particularly well placed right now, which is why you don't see a lot of Silvala or Grenzo or whatever. Yeah. But like being relevant in the early game somehow is an expectation on CDH decks. Maybe it's interaction. Maybe you're threatening to win. Yeah. You know, if you're just playing like some random Muldrotha deck that has no interaction. Sure. Or like you're (laughs) my, I mean, I know you're not talking about me because mine definitely does. Uh, Like if you're just playing some random, like cultivate on turn three into five drop, commander on turn four into like some mid-range beater creature tap out on turn five kind of thing like you aren't really participating you're just like it's it seems pretty clear to me at that point that your objectives aren't the same as everyone else in the game and that's that can be really frustrating um yeah so Nice. It's gonna be a nice double feature question because that that covers the second the second question, um, and then the, the first question, which I'll read read again, is: Do you think budget decks can ever really be CDH, or is making a deck building decision for reasons outside of the game inherently against the spirit of the format? Uh, I feel like it's it's really about external restrictions. Personally, um, I feel like. For the most part, for like almost every reason why you would build a budget deck, right? Like it's it's pretty much always going to be acceptable because it's just like, well, yeah, you just you don't have the money to afford real decks. Not like most people don't for CDH, very expensive format. Um, you might as well like play to the best that you can if you're not allowed to use proxies, um, all that stuff. But I feel like where it crosses the line for me personally is like if you're if it's fully accepted that you can play whatever power you want, maybe it's proxies, maybe it's uh, online, whatever. 
and your personal philosophies to not play proxies. Um, at that point, I think you're sort of bringing down, or like you're 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 not your goals aren't the same as everybody else who's there to play the format. Yeah, that's a very good point because I I would say that inherently budget decks are not. It's it, that they're fine. They are CDH budget decks. There's nothing inherent about a budget deck that that, that makes it not CDH. Um, for instance, like if you're playing a budget TNT deck, you know, no duels. But maybe you've got shocks, and you know, maybe you can't have a mana crypt, but you've got, you know, you can compensate. Um, you're you're still probably better than some of the budgetless fringe decks, right? So the power level is there. Like we consider the budgetless fringe decks as part of cdh right cdh has has you know as much as people like to gripe about tier lists there are pretty definitive tiers right so you can still be a budget top tier deck and and not be like the very bottom of the bottom um but as reed pointed out this is mostly something that should should be there when it's necessary if there is no actual budget restriction um, in terms of like you just don't have access to cards and you can't play proxies or, you know, this isn't like a CDH budget league or something like that, then you really should be trying to play at the highest power level possible. Otherwise, you are affecting the other players in the pod. You know, regular EDH has a social contract and a lot of that is like, you know, don't play MLD and things like that. <laughs> but CDH also does have a social contract, uh, which is we expect to play games at the highest level or, you know, approximately something like that. And you you need to have a good reason to, to contravene that. So I have kind of a different take, and I feel like it's because I think there are sort of two definitions of cdh that most people will often like one person will actually use both of them in different contexts and in different discussions so i think that to a degree like if you were taking sort of the strict definition of cdh then that would be a very small number of decks and like no budget restrictions you know the bottom of the bottom of that list you know like this is like the the best i don't know 5 to maybe Up eight to like decks in the 10 format maybe yeah yeah maybe 10 if we're being if we're being generous decks in the format would be sort of the strict definition and i i think that yes putting a budget list against sort of the budget list top of the format that would be sort of against the spirit of that, but I think that there's also a much broader definition that includes, like, just a huge whack of stuff. Like, I probably have a much broader definition of what is sort of the broad CDH than, than most people that just includes, like, includes a huge number of lists... Some of which, yeah, even as as Lyndon said, even when fully built, are never going to match like some budget, uh, I don't know, budget CST or budget Hulk decks. You know, if you fully build out like my my forever pet deck of Mizics, like 
Would I rather play budget CST or fully built Mizzix? If I was trying to win, probably I'd pick budget CST, but certainly I don't, I don't think, I think that when you're brewing a deck, you need to decide what you're doing with this deck. And if the idea is I want to make this deck like cutthroat competitive, win as much as possible, then you should probably brew the deck as if you have no budget restrictions. And it's fine to brew a deck with no budget restrictions and then play the deck with budget restrictions as well. Like, obviously, there's secondary brewing to bring it down to your budget limits, but take the idea as budgetless and then make a budget version. Um, but I think that if your idea is, look, I want to play a deck that's, you know, relevant really early and I'm playing it against other competitive decks with the sort of competitive mentality, but, you know, it's it's fun and not super, like... We're not all just jamming like the the best five net decks, then sure, budget list away. And I don't think anyone should ever be like if anyone ever shames anyone or insults them or anything like that for playing budget options. Like screw that. That's never okay. I'm also not a huge fan of people trying to enforce no proxies. Like from yeah. uh, from an LGS level, that kind of I kind of get it. Right, you know, some LGSs or some of them might have, you know, oh, you can only run like three proxies or something like that. But but also but like there's there's I a just, real consequence. I'm not a huge from... fan of like yeah, someone spends a bunch of money on the format and it's like, well, you know, I spent all this money, but so you you should have to as well. Like that's yeah, I'm that that kind of goes against the CDH mentality to me, which is wanting to have wanting to play against the highest powerful the the highest tiered decks in in powerful. If you're if you're just wanting to uh start off with a massive handicap it kind of just feels like a pub stomping mentality like you just enjoy yeah. having an unfair advantage yeah now the, obviously the counterpoint to that is like you know the, the counterpoint is that it, it certainly feels unfair if you like went out of your way to save money and you for like you decided to forego other things that you might have wanted to buy these cards have somebody else just print them off like i understand why that why that you know is upsetting to people um and i think we've mentioned this before although i think it's been a while since we've talked about proxies you know my view is you shouldn't approach magic with the idea that you aren't spending money on it but not everyone, like, there are people who can't save money faster than Time Twister gains value. Yes. Like, they, so, you know, if you're spending sort of what you can reasonably spend on magic, then you're, like, that's completely fine by me. But I, you know, I, I do the idea of, well, I'm just going to play for free because everyone else is paying into the system. Like, I see why that bothers some people. Yeah. Um, anything else on this uh, listener question, or should we move on to our final listener question? Let's move on to the final listener question. All right. This comes from Patron Mortality eighteen. You can play an early Praetor's Grasp. Uh, you are playing against a t- a table of tier one decks. Which deck do you choose? Which card do you take? 
Well, I think the first question is, why am I playing Prayer's Grasp? <laughs> That's a very good question, yeah. <laughs> not, but being realistic. I'm not a huge fan of this card, yeah. If we are, if if I am in the situation where I'm playing an early game Prayer's Grasp against a table of, of a bunch of really good decks, um, that would logically, I logically conclude from that, that means that I'm probably playing Varals for some reason or another. <laughs> and... Sure. Tier one deck at the table realistically means there's at least one Hulk deck at the table. Realistically, also in four color, <laughs> which means I am pointing the Praetor's Grasp at the Hulk player and taking their flash. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So my my answer for this and it's kind of read Reed, Reed's answer, even if it's joking, but does does contain sort of useful advice, which is you should be tutoring for something that proactively helps your own strategy uh you should not be using praetor's grasp as a three mana extract that is just a losing play like oh wow you made the git rock player lose the game by praetor's grasping their deck more hooray like that doesn't advance you closer to winning the game no, that makes you a winner <laughs> it doesn't even matter what the outcome of the game is that makes you a flash. <laughs> yeah so one one thing like if you're an ad if you're an ad nauseum deck you know Taking someone else's ad nauseum stops them from being able to do that. Well, it's also relevant that you target the appropriate player. If you're at a table of Gitrog, Cass, and Zur, right? You know, probably take the Zur's ad nauseum because they've got ad nauseum's grace, and it's a much more important part of their plan than it is something like the Gitrog player's uh, ad nauseum. So I feel like I'd take Cass's ad nauseum there because Zur has Necropotence, anyways. Like much more consistently. Ah, uh, but yeah. the but the point is, you pointed at the Zer. Paul took them into think into thinking that you took the Adnaz, and they swing with Zer and realized you took their Necro. <laughs> <laughs> no, what did you do to my deck? Yeah, and so there's that, and then also like if there's a a tainted pact or consult deck, um, if you sorry, if you're a tainted pact or consult deck, taking you know, I'd probably target. Instead of targeting another tainted pack console deck because there's redundant copies or there's redundant, it's like you know they're redundant pieces. Taking it out of something like um, uh, food chain first sliver, where it's like a double double tutor or something like that. That's you know, then you take the you also take the tainted pack to make them sweat because when they cast consult they can just lose the game. <laughs> Things like that, like. Yeah, I don't know. There's 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 small little ways you can optimize it. Oh but my god! Wait, that just... I think also one one facet of this question that I don't think either of you really discussed is it does say you can play an early Praetor's Grasp. Oh yes, when you're playing against the table of tier one decks, and I think that often it is actually like just sort of randomly Praetor's Grasping or you know randomly tutoring, randomly extracting someone <laughs> is very not great. Um. And even randomly tutoring is not always the correct play. Like, it may just be appropriate to hold it until later. Um, you know, when maybe maybe the, the Flashhawk player tried to go off and, you know, like, their, some other pieces are in their, in their bin. And you can go like, okay, you know what, maybe I don't actually need to target flashlight player for whatever it is i'm getting i can target somebody who's a little bit more threatening or you know something like that just the later you're casting it the more information you have um and uh always take chain veil face down because 
Dream crushing. Um, <laughs> oh, by, by the way, just before just before we finish up, I did want to say because I'm always looking for new ways to BM. Uh, Lyndon, your idea of taking stuff from the free chain player just gave me the best idea for counter BM ever, which is when somebody when you're on a consult deck and you're going to win through consult and you know this with demonic consultation and something. Uh, when somebody Praetor scraps you and still has the card in exile. The most BM thing ever is to name the card that you think they took with the console. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and just, oh, and just call it. <laughs> yeah. Not even resolve a tutor, just know it. No, nope. just moly. know exactly what they took. Yeah. You're just like, I just look them in the eyes and name Mana Crypt off a of demonic consultation. Yeah, you're transparent <laughs> to me. <laughs> um, yeah, that's, that's good BM. But yeah, like I think, I think. People find it funny to to do the face down extract thing, but I think that that's yeah, it, it's pretty much always wrong. The only like, time oh, it's correct, I can take your food chain face down. Screw you. The only, like, the only time it's correct to extract like a Dakmar or food chain or something is when you're playing food chain first sliver and you've already tutored all your your cast from exile creatures and you have a spare extract in your hand. That's when it's appropriate to do that. Otherwise, I mean, you know, you could also use. Praetor's Grasp is extract when you're looping it infinite numbers of times in a turn. That's also good. Hopefully that's what you're doing with this deck, because <laughs> yes. otherwise, why is there a Praetor's Grasp? <laughs> yeah, really. Hey, dude, Just, I think there's always, almost, almost always okay. better win cons than looping a Praetor's Grasp. I'm give you the like, spice. Yeah. When you're playing a non-blue Hulk deck in a Hulk-heavy meta, you play the Praetor's Grasp so you can take the other deck's flash, <laughs> so you can have your own flash. Why am I playing a non-blue Hulk deck? Because sometimes you just gotta do what you gotta do. You know what I mean? Do you? Do you? <laughs> sometimes it'd be like that. Why am I playing a non-blue Hulk deck with a Praetor's Grasp in it? I have questions. I know. It's, it's it's sometimes people don't think it'd be like that, but it but do. it do. Okay. Is it people don't think it'd be like it be, but it do. Anyways, whatever. <laughs> that wraps it up for this episode. If you guys would like to reach out to us with any questions, comments, or concerns, you can contact us on Twitter at Into the North Pod via our email, Into the North Podcast at gmail.com, or on our Discord server, the invite link for which can be found in the description for this episode. Extra special thanks to all of our patrons who help cover the expenses for our show and allow us to work towards improving the quality of the podcast. If you too would like to become a patron, we are at patreon.com slash Into the North Podcast. Thank you as always to the band Vox Cadre for our lovely podcast music, to Nate Slover for our equally lovely podcast logo, and to our long-suffering podcast editor Roadkill. Next episode will be out in two weeks. Until then, see ya. Bye. See ya.